everlasting God, Lord of heaven and earth, we pray that as we gather today around your word, you help us to fear you and be in awe of you, that we will trust you and not despise your great grace. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Now just imagine with me for a moment your life without watches or clocks or any other kind of device that enables you to measure uh, time in a precise way. Uh, just pretend that they haven't been invented yet. What would life look like? You know, try, try catching a movie at the cinema. When would you know where to go? Or try telling your friend, you know, what time the Smack One service begins. You say, uh, um, I think it's just after the Iban service, which is sort of after the first liturgical service, and then you're stuck. Or perhaps try going to the airport to try to catch a flight. Now that would be interesting, wouldn't it? What time do you have to be there? How much time do you need to check in your luggage? When is the plane arriving or leaving? Is there time at all for coffee and a long toilet break? Well, well, let's get back to life with clocks and watches, but let's stay at the airport for a bit longer. Let's say that you're told that your flight begins uh, leaves at, say, 11 a.m. And think for a moment how that affects you. If you're too early and your flight ends up getting delayed, then you'll probably find yourself bored, wouldn't you? Uh, maybe even irritated if you got up really early. Uh, you wander around shops and you play on your smartphone and you basically daydream to try to pass away the time. If you're running late, well, you become stressed and anxious, don't you? Uh, suddenly you don't want time to pass away at all. Now, either way, your morning revolves around that flight time. It's, it's your master, really, because it affects the way you feel, the way you behave, what you expect. And it isn't just the airport, is it? When we stop to think about it, we realize just how much the clock dominates the rhythms of our lives. There's always another deadline, another exam, another social event, fixing the shape of your week for you. And notice how we speak about time. Consider a common prayer request. You know, you're in your growth groups and it's prayer time and you get around to the next person and the person says, well, pray that I'll be better at time management. For us modern people, we like to think of time as something to be managed or controlled, like money. That's why we say things like, I want to spend more time with her. Or, I invested a lot of time in him. Or, you're wasting my time. That traffic jam cost me an hour. Time is valuable. We know that regardless of how much money we have, or where we live, or what sort of job we do, we still have the same amount of time as everyone else. So we believe that we must maximize the 86,400 seconds a day that we have. And that's why we try to speed things up, don't we? You know, faster load up times. Higher bandwidth, instant communication. As Henry Ford once said, we must have every second necessary, but not a single unnecessary second. And that's why we have books that tell you a 1,001 places you must go before you die, or the 1,001 dishes that you must taste before you die. For such is life 
in a time-bound world. But what does Ecclesiastes have to say about this? What does the preacher think about this? Well, last week we saw, didn't we, how he tried to maximize the time he had. He tried to go down three different paths. Paths that many people in the 21st uh, century still travel on. He tried the path of enlightenment, of learning and education. But that didn't work. It only brought him sorrow. So he switched roads and then he went down the path of pleasure, of wine and women and possessions. But that didn't satisfy either. So he went down yet another path in pursuit of success and achievement. But he soon discovers that all that is an illusion too. That also is vanity and a great evil. What's the point? Why, why are we so obsessed with making the most of our time when in the end it doesn't lead anywhere? And so when we get to chapter 3, we find the preacher in reflective mood. He's reflecting on the passing of time. He's asking, is there anything at all to life in a time-bound world? Is there any significance at all to human history? And those are still important questions for us today, isn't it? How can we live in a world ruled by time? Our ambitions, our dreams, our actions, are they all vanity? Is that it? And that's what we might expect the preacher to say, given what we've seen so far. But will he surprise us today? Well, let's find out as we look at today's passage. And the first thing he wants to say is this. Observe the rhythms of the seasons. Observe the rhythms of the seasons. Verses 1 to 8. Now, these are probably the most famous verses in the book. Here, the preacher reflects on what he calls in verse 1, every matter under heaven. He's looking at life in the here and now. Life as if this is all there is, although it's still life under God in heaven. It's as if he's in an art gallery and he's about to look at this giant picture called life. Life in all its richness and variety and contradictions. Life from the beginning, a time to be born, to the end, a time to die, and everything in between. But before he shows us this giant picture, this giant painting, he gives us his big idea first in verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. What he's saying is this, for everything there is an appointed time. It's very similar to the thought that we find in Acts chapter 1 verse 7, where Jesus says, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And the preacher turns to poetry to further unpack his big idea. In just seven verses, from verses 2 to 8, he sweeps over the whole of life by giving us 14 pairs of contrasts which highlight our most basic experiences, our deepest emotions, and our most important relationships. 
there's a rhythm to the poem. He keeps saying, you know, there's a time for this and a time for that. 28 times he uses that very phrase. And in doing so, he's telling us something about the fabric of life itself. There's a kind of rhythm to how life works out in this world. There is an order to creation which has been laid down by the Creator Himself. He's saying to us, look, there's, there's no randomness, no, no chaos, no pure chance to life. It's just like how in some countries, uh, some of you are from them, where we move from seasons from spring to summer to autumn to winter. Or in this country where we move from Chinese New Year to Hari Raya to Deepavali to Christmas. Well, life moves in seasons and patterns. And they are fixed by God. So for example, in verse 2, there is a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. See, a good farmer knows when it's the right time to plant trees and when it's the right time to uproot them. He's free, of course, to ignore the very rhythms of nature. He can try to plant a tree when it's negative 20 degrees or uprooting the trees just as they are bearing fruit. But that would be foolish. He can and should plant at the appropriate time. But he can't fix them. God has already done so. Or verse 4. There is a time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. Now, I once heard of a well-meaning Christian group uh, that sang songs of celebration at a funeral. They wanted to communicate that death is nothing at all. But that is not wise. We grieve with hope, yes, but we still grieve, for death is still an evil intruder into this world. Death is an appropriate time to weep. That is an appropriate time to mourn. Similarly, it would be silly to cover yourself in sackcloth and ashes at a wedding, wouldn't it? Uh, that's what Jesus is getting at when he tells the Pharisees, how can the wedding guests fast when the bridegroom is with them? That's the time to laugh and to dance. Verse 7 carries similar ideas. There's a time to tear, to tear your clothes as a sign of grief. And there's a time to sow, to move on from the mourning period and remove your torn clothes from view. You see, in life there are beginnings and endings. Verse 3, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. And so, you also see something like that in verse 5, there's a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. Possibly a reference to demolishing and rebuilding. Or verse 6. There's a time to seek out new things and a time to give up something as lost. There are times to store things and a time to let go. For everything, there is a season. And God is in charge of them. In verse 11, we're told that God has made everything beautiful in its time. Now, perhaps a slightly better translation would be, God has made everything fitting in its time. Or something like, God has made everything fit beautifully. 
think of moments in your life where it seems as if the event and the timing just fit beautifully. Uh, maybe it was a lovely Saturday morning where the weather was just right and the coffee was just nice. Uh, maybe it was that time when you close an important deal or you finish an important project. Or maybe it was the time when your team scored in the last minute of extra time to win that title. Well, for every matter under heaven, God has made fitting in its time, says the preacher. He has so ordered the world and fixed the times so that we would be wise to discern the times and live according to his blueprint. But we can't leave it there. Because that's not all the preacher is saying. For as we read on, we realize that actually, he's not being all sentimental. And the second thing he wants to say is this. Acknowledge the futility of eternity. Acknowledge the futility of eternity. Now we could so easily read verses 1 to 8 and sigh, Oh, that's life. And that's how many people interpret it. And that's why you often find this poem in greeting cards and in inspirational posters. But for the preacher, once he finishes being poetic, he says, that's life? That's it? Look at verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? Yes, there is a time for this and a time for that. Yes, we can look and rejoice at the pattern of life. And yet, we can also look at life and wonder at the meaninglessness and the tedium of it all. If life is all about the ups cancelling the downs and the downs cancelling the ups, and then we all die, well, we're back to the same question as last week. What's the point? I was in London the day it was announced they won the bid to host the Olympics. And as you can imagine, it was a time of jubilation and celebration. But less than 24 hours later, there was a terrorist attack on the underground trains as well as a bus. People were killed. My brother was just a couple of hundred meters behind one of the buses, the bus that exploded. And so it became a time of weeping and mourning. We look at those events and think, how is it that in God's world, they can sit side by side? If we can switch from one season to another and back again so easily, well, what gain has the worker from his toil? That's the preacher's dilemma. He says, verse 10, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. He is echoing what has, he has already said in 1 verse 13, that the quest for meaning is an unhappy business for man to bear. It's a burden that is unavoidable, and yet it is a burden that is also futile. He knows that the Lord has made everything fitting in its time, and yet verse 11 he has also put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. 
Imagine once again you are in that art gallery and you're looking at that giant picture called life. Uh, imagine too that you are short-sighted and that you don't have glasses or contact lenses or anything like that. And from afar, you can't see the picture at all. All you can see is a random mix of colors. And when you move in closer, well, you can see some of the features of the picture now, can't you? Uh, sometimes in sharp focus. But now, because you're so close, you can only see individual details, but you can't see the big picture. Well, the preacher is getting across a similar idea here. God has put eternity into our hearts so that we recognize that there's more to life than this. We know that we are part of a bigger picture, a bigger story. And to make sense of our lives, we need to look both into the past and into the future. But the frustration is that we just can't see the bigger picture. We can only see random colors mixed in together. Or we can only see those individual details. But we can't see the bigger picture. We can try to learn from our past and prepare for the future. But we just can't know the entire story of our lives. It's as if we tried to make sense of a 500-episode Korean drama series when we've only seen parts of episode 4, episode 49, and episode 102. That's the futility of eternity. Mao Zedong's second-in-command, Zhao Enlai, was once asked about the significance of the French Revolution. He replied, it's too soon to say. We can't discern the times because we can't stand back far enough. And that's what the preacher wants to point out to us. See, this poem isn't meant to celebrate the times of our lives, but to present the futility of interpreting its seasons. He forces us to see that alongside a time of peace, it's a time for war, a time where there is much killing and mourning and weeping and breaking down and losing. This sense of time, this sense of eternity in our hearts can torture us in ways that nothing else can in a fallen world. As one Chinese poet put it, life rarely reaches 70. That I am 70 is a surprise. I was too young the first 10 years and too old the last 10. There are only 50 years in between. Half of that is spent at night. By calculation, I have only lived 25 years, during which I have endured much toil and trouble. Time can torture us in ways that nothing else can. Thankfully, the preacher does not stop there. And the third thing he wants to say to us is this. Fear him, the eternal watchmaker. Fear him, the eternal watchmaker. Twice the preacher says, I perceive. Once in verse 12 and once in verse 14. And having presented us with the futility of eternity, he now offers us two responses. And I'm going to take them in reverse order. So firstly, in verses 14 and 15, he 
He reminds us of God's identity as sovereign. Verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. His point is basically this. What God wants, God gets. What God has decided, no one can change. What God has fixed, God has made permanent. You can't change it. I can't change it. No human authority can change it. Satan can't change it. What God wants, God gets. Now, just bringing God into the picture doesn't offer immediate relief by itself, as we've just seen from verses 10 and 11. And simply saying that God is sovereign might not, at first sight, offer us much comfort either. But actually, God's sovereignty changes everything. Imagine being on a bus that is old and it's got a noisy engine, and it feels a bit dodgy, and you're on a narrow road in hazy weather. Would you prefer a highly competent driver or no driver at all? Well, that's the difference between believing in fate and believing in God. To say God is sovereign instead of just everything is fated, everything is just fixed, is the difference between having a driver and no driver at all. And that is key. For the sense of eternity in our heart can provoke a deep-seated insecurity within us. In the star, just last week, there was an interesting feature on how many of us in Malaysia visit temple mediums. And we do so because we want to know the future. We want to improve our professional and love life. We want to minimize that sense of insecurity. And so many of us, the young and well-educated included, Go to the mediums and to the fortune tellers for help. But if we know that whatever God does endures forever, well, we will run to him instead. Remember? He is the one who fixes seasons and times. He is the driver of the bus. Did you notice the reason that the preacher gives for God's action? It's to fear him. It's to stand in awe of him. After all, when we recognize our helplessness as we reflect on God's appointed times, well, what else can we do? The preacher says, we can't see the painting clearly, but we know the painter. His brushstrokes last forever. So fear him. Now, a few hundred years later, Jesus will give the same perspective. On life. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28 to 31, it should be on the screen, he says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your heads are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus says, fear the one who knows you so intimately that he knows how much black or brown or blonde or gray hair that 
that you've got. But why, why don't you fear him? Is it because you've forgotten who he actually is? Have you forgotten that he can give and take away life at any moment? Have you forgotten that he's bigger than your boss or your problems or your sin or indeed your time? For ultimately the clock is not our master. Instead we live for the watchmaker and that makes all the difference. Secondly, the preacher reminds us of God's identity as a giver. So verses 12 and 13. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. When we accept that it is God who fixes the time and not us, and that this too is a gift, then we will be able to live lives of contentment. We will enjoy and be confident that amid all the tensions of the times that we live in, we can enjoy life. Every season of our life comes from Him. Therefore, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 to 17, he says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. As we walk with the Lord, as we spend time in His Word so as to discern His will, we will redeem the time for His glory. God is sovereign. God is giver. Whatever he does endures forever. And the preacher reminds us of this. But actually we have an even better reminder. We have a bigger picture than what the preacher could ever imagine. We have seen a time that he could only long for. For where there was once mystery, God has now made known. God has shown us where the bigger story is heading in a way that he never showed the preacher. He has shown us how everything is fitting in its time. And how do we know that? Well, read these words. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer slaves, but a son. And if a son, then an heir towards God. Jesus has come, and he is the very best gift from God himself. You see, that's where history, that's where the big story is heading. And so when Jesus comes, he tells us, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The king, the sovereign himself has come, bringing with him the gift of his kingdom. It is a time to be born and a time to die. Oh, Jesus knows that better than anyone, doesn't he? As he heads to the cross, he cries out, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come 
to this hour to die on the cross. Like a lamb to the slaughter, he keeps silent at the appropriate time. As he hung on the cross to fulfill scripture, he speaks at the appointed time. And as he cries out, it is finished, his work of salvation will endure for all time. And as he rises from the dead, we are assured that the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And therefore, the Apostle Peter says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. God has fixed the seasons and the times. And the God who gives us every season of life has also given himself in the person of Christ to us. And as we live in this tension now, in this age and in the age to come, there is always a time to weep and a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn and a time to dance. There's freedom from sin's power, and yet we still sin. There is no more sting to death, but death is still painful. But the preacher tells us, God has done it, so that people fear before him. God has done something that endures forever when Jesus became our great sacrifice. Nothing can be added to it, and nothing can be taken away from it. His sovereignty, His majesty, His mercy are all found at the foot of the cross and in the empty tomb so that we can eat and drink and take pleasure in all our toil to the glory of God, waiting for that time when the Son of Man will come again in glory. Fear Him. Be in awe of Him. Worship Him and love Him. Let's pray. Everlasting God, the Lord of heaven and earth, you have indeed fixed the seasons and the times. You alone know when the appointed times are. And as we live in this fallen world, a world marked with toil and heartache, a world where war exists alongside peace, we thank you so much that you have redeemed us through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That at the fullness of time, you send your only Son and at that very hour, he went to the cross. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. And he will come back on the day that only you know. And because of that, we no longer labor in vain. We are no longer subject.
to the meaninglessness of life. So help us to fear you, to worship you, and to love you. In Jesus' most precious name we pray. Amen.